0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from the book of John, chapter 4. If you would like, the page number is 1030. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee.
1: Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked, have asked him, and he would have given you living water.
0: Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons, And his livestock?
1: Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life.
0: Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw
1: water. Go. Call your husband and come back.
0: I have no husband.
1: You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true.
0: Sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.
1: Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth.
0: I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us.
1: I, the one speaking to you, I am he.
0: Just then... His disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want?
1: Why are you talking with her?
0: Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him.
1: Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his
0: disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food?
1: My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor.
0: Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became
1: believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that uh, it would be done in our uh, setting, in our community, as, as we read it here. Um, I pray that, uh, yeah, these things would be true, Um, I pray for Pastor Mark as he preaches. I pray that we would be uh, a community that is refreshed by the the wellspring of the living water of Jesus. I pray that we would um, learn from his wise uh, wisdom, uh, that we would be like the disciples, maybe uh, given new eyes to see and uh, new ears to hear. Um, Help us to be doers of the words. We pray this in your name. Amen.
2: Today, an annual event occurs in my beloved home state of Indiana that Abby and I, every year, make sure we record and then watch it as soon as we can afterwards. It's the Indianapolis 500. It's a car race really an extravaganza of sorts, in Indianapolis, Indiana, the capital of my home state of Indiana. Did I say Indiana, the capital? Yeah, Indianapolis, Indianapolis. Um, And it's an extravaganza where the drivers and cars journey over 500 miles as quickly as they can, and well over 200 miles an hour for most of the time there are several ways to win a race such as the Indianapolis 500. The best and most reliable way is to have the best driver, the fastest car, the fastest pit stops, and the most luck. Often though, the race is won by someone who isn't the best driver, who doesn't have the fastest car, or the fastest pit stops, but has the most luck of anyone in the field, at least more luck than can be reasonably expected. Maybe the faster car had trouble, or the driver made a mistake, or a wreck swallows them up. A third way is that they have the best strategy. When maybe the team plans for one fewer pit stop, saving fuel all along the way by staying out of sync with the leaders and running a bit more slowly such that when the faster cars are taking their last pit stops for for fuel, he or she is moving away slower toward the finish line, but minus the time gained by not having to make that last stop. And the trick is not running out of fuel while going just as fast as you possibly can on the edge of your fuel consumption. A couple of years ago, a rookie named Alexander Rossi won the Indianapolis 500 in just this very way. His was a strategy win, and virtually no one had ever heard of him before this moment. In fact, when he crossed the finish line in the first place, in first place rather, Abby and I exclaimed in unison, Who the heck is Alexander Rossi? Well, the whole racing world knows who he is now. As with the Indianapolis 500, there are numerous ways to success in the world, whether we're talking about business or academia, sports, service industries. There are many ways that one can work through the details of being successful. But there's only one way of success, if we can call it that way, for Christians and churches. It's not luck. It's not being the fastest in a race. It's not being the best at what we do. It's not having the fastest pit stops. It is by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, who is the power of the resurrection and also the power of our usefulness before God. Now, there are many other attempts in the church to be successful in other ways. And some of them have become outrageously successful. But the only biblical way that we have is by the blood of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God applying his word to both our lives and our ministries. We might even say that apart from the many ways to be or become successful at church and in the Christian life, true worship in spirit and in truth is the only way of success. Our message for this morning is really Part two of a message that began last Sunday, and it's the conclusion of our Biblical Christians Who Are We series. We are, at our very most basic, worshipers of the one true and living God, who has revealed to us himself, and most surely, most accurately, and most profoundly in Christ Jesus our Lord, the Savior of the world. The main thing that I want to remind us of this Sunday from last Sunday is that our place and our purpose as worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus is unique in the universe. Where unique means that it applies to no other, it's not somewhat unique, it's not very unique. Unique doesn't need a modifier, it's either unique or it's not. And our place as worshipers of the one true and living God on the earth applies to no other animate or inanimate. And indeed, no other aspect of God's creation, not even another creature, has been deliberately, irrevocably, and personally created by our creator God in his own image and likeness and for the express purpose of representing him on the earth. We human beings, that's it. As such, we human beings are the lead worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus on the earth. We might want to debate our role and the heavenly host's role in the grandest scheme of all that is in the heavenlies, but on the earth it's us. And in that case, I'm sure you'd agree with me that it would be great for us to, one, know what constitutes true worship of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, and two we should know what constitutes or or who are the true worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. Last week we looked at the first biblical truth, that is what constitutes true worship from Proverbs 3 of all places, and the central truth or thesis of our message from last week was we express true worship of the one true and living God when we acknowledge him and his sovereign goodness with our whole lives, entrusting our eternities to Christ Jesus our Lord. This means that true worship must be more lifestyle than event, more content consistent with God's revealed being and character, his attributes, his purposes, and his acts in history than musical style more spirit-led than programmed, timed, and manufactured, and absolutely no fog. More about God than us. This brings us up to date and up to speed, more or less, and ready for the central truth of our message for this morning. It comes from the life, leadership, and teaching of Jesus in John 4. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4, If not, you can reach the pew rack in front of you for one of our pew Bibles and turn to the gospel there. We're already acquainted with our central truth for this morning, so I'll just remind us of it as you turn to John 4. You have it there in your bulletin insert as well as in your bulletins. Here it is aloud. The true worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. Worship him in spirit, and in truth, receiving his living water unto eternal life, transcending any and all restrictions of our past, our present, our place, or religious history, to live refreshed and refreshing lives of true worship and praise. I know that's beyond the suggested 20 word central truth. I feel the need to pray for just a moment. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue on in this study of your word and proclamation of your gospel, I pray that you would give me your words, even now. And I pray that you would give all of us hearts, ears, and minds to listen and to apply and to become more productive by your word in your spirit. Eternally productive, and not merely successful as the world counts it, but faithful, obedient, worshipers of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Now, I'm doing something a bit different this morning, a bit more of a survey of the passage than an exposition, and that's really for two reasons. First of all, I've had a heavy week, and it was hard to do all that I needed to get done, and that's not an excuse. I'm just reporting here. But the other thing is that it's 42 verses, and we can't do any sort of thorough exposition in 42 minutes. So, um, so I'm gonna, I've already given you an outline of sorts. I've provided you my section headings and the corresponding scripture verses that are in your bulletin under the sermon title, and you have that in your insert. So, I would uh, suggest that you use those uh, freely. Uh, if you're taking notes, then you've already got a head start. Uh, and, and for example, the first one is setting the scene, verses 1 through 6. That's there on the first page at the bottom. So let's, let's look at it. Setting the scene, verse, verses one through six of John's Gospel, chapter four. Join me in the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, our Pew Bibles, are New International Version, but I don't think it'll be too distracting, uh, whatever differences there are. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So here is another, if we're paying attention to the text, if we're reading closely, there are many, many, many places in the Gospels where it looks like Jesus is responding to some sort of landmark or some sort of trigger, that this event happens, and then he does that, or he does this, and this seems to be one of those. He heard that the Pharisees were noticing something that seems from the text to be some, some trigger for him or some landmark that he knows that from this point forward I go here or I do that. And here he hears that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That would be interpreted from a worldly point of view, becoming more popular, becoming more influential than John, and from a Pharisaical point of view. And a Roman point of view, more of a threat. Because John was already a bit of a troublemaker, right? Because he didn't conform himself to any of the rules, any of the ways, and he ended up losing his head, not exactly before that, but he was imprisoned for that. And this Jesus is now becoming even more successful, even even more noticeable, and potentially even more influential. Then John. So now we have to look at him. And Jesus hears this, and it says that from that point forward, he went here. Now, where did he go? He went to Galilee. He left Judea, verse 3, and departed again for Galilee. And verse 4 has an interesting little phrasing, and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, the only thing that can mean is that he had a purpose that God had placed upon his life and his calling that he had to go through Samaria because he didn't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, it was shorter through Samaria. It was more direct through Samaria. But there's no reason other than God said, go through Samaria, that he had to go through Samaria because you could get to Galilee otherwise. And so once again, we see Jesus responding to and fulfilling the Father's will for him, going into what would have been in some ways hostile territory with the Samaritans. And we we hear and see a little bit of that in his interaction with the woman at the well. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Wearied as, he, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour, or noon as the NIV says. This is another reason that I love the scriptures, because it includes information that wouldn't be necessary unless there was a point to be made, and that point here is that Jesus was tired. We think, son of God, how could he be tired? Jesus was tired. He was also son of man, fully God, fully man, experienced all of the rigors of, of the human life, of the human body, and the human body, guess what? When you, when you work it too hard, it gets tired. Now, if the Gospels were a hero's chronicles, like other mythologies, that would be left out because Jesus could do anything, right? Right? Why, why? He's God, how could he be tired? Well, it says here, Jesus was wearied or tired, and so he pulled up to the Jacob's well and took a seat. So here we've set the setting of what is about to happen in this interchange with the Samaritan woman, with Jesus' disciples, and then ultimately from those who came out from the town following her testimony to the one sitting out at the well that must be, must be at least a prophet and then perhaps the Christ. So setting the scene, verses 1 through 6. The second thing, the second heading, an unexpected encounter with the living water that wells up to eternal life. An unexpected encounter with the living water that wells up to eternal life. and we see scenes like this all through the Gospels where somebody didn't intend to be or didn't expect to be face-to-face with, their, with, with the Son of God. And there they were. And there he was pointing something out or teaching them something they needed to know. And here she is, completely unexpected, doesn't know who he is, and has no idea what the result will be for that meeting. At, at verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. And this is one of those scenes, and there are several of them here in just this one passage, where Jesus is speaking not metaphorically exactly, but spiritually. That has truth and substance along with it. And those that are hearing his words take them and apply them literally, and can't see anything beyond them. And How frustrating that must have been to the Lord. His whole life, (laughs) he's seeing things that nobody else sees. And he's saying things that nobody else understands. And here he is with this woman, and he's communicating to her well beyond her ability to take in. And I do want us to just pause here for a moment and understand that there are many things in the will of God and the Word of God that we cannot understand apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Many of us have the experience of, of having read the Bible, maybe even read the whole Bible studiously in, for a class or, or, or as literature or, or just out of curiosity. Before we became Christians and before the Holy Spirit was there to help us, and they're just words to us. There's no life transformation. It doesn't mean anything beyond what the words say. And, and then we come to Christ, and, and immediately the words of Scripture become, begin jumping off the page at us. And I, I had that experience for sure. Does anybody else have that experience? Three people. Four people. Five. Can I get six people? <laughs> And and that's just one example of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this woman, it's it's before she's come to Christ. It's before the Holy Spirit has, has come. And so she's listening to words, making literal interpretation when Jesus means something much deeper. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? are you greater than our father Jacob? The obvious answer would be no, right? That's what she expects, and that's what she anticipates when she asks the question. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, that is the water of Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we have a great advantage over the woman at the well here. Not only do we, do we personally have the Holy Spirit, those of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ and reborn by His Spirit, we know precisely what he's talking about because we have the living water! But I want you to notice that he says that that living water will become in him, and it's Jesus who gives it, a spring of water from within welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. (laughs) Spiritual meaning, literal interpretation. Well. She'll get better in in a bit. So the third thing, an unexpected encounter with the truth. And what I'm calling a clever-ish deflection. Verses 16 to 20. Jesus said to her, so we're still in this conversation, right? Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now that might seem to be a non-sequitur, but Jesus is getting to the heart of her separation from God. If it was me, he would would tell me to do something else that would expose the heart of my separation from God. If it was any one of you, it'd be something else. So, So let's not be too tough on the Samaritan woman here. He's getting to the heart of her lack of relationship with the one true and living God, and the encounter is powerful. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, and come here. Now notice there's, there's m- much room for judgment here, there's much room for the wrath of God and Jesus indeed was a prophet, much more than a prophet but he, was, he, he, he told her all that she had done in her life was her testimony that we'll read about here in just a bit. But he didn't. He asked her a simple question that was completely unjudgmental and yet it was completely exposing of her situation. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now I wonder how she said it. I wonder if she said, I have no husband. Like a feminist might say today. Or was it shameful? I, I have no husband. Or someplace in between. We don't know, but we can tell, I think, that he's he's starting to get to her. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she takes a left turn (laughs) here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So we've set the scene. We've seen an unexpected encounter with the living water that wells up to eternal life that the woman from Samaria has. We've also seen an unexpected encounter with the truth. And how does she know it's the truth? Because he just told her something that he could never have known unless he was at least a prophet. And he was much more. True worshipers are those who offer true worship in spirit and in truth. Well, she's she's made a turn here. It is a bit of a non sequitur. Jesus can and Jesus does use it for God's glory and to exalt himself and to teach us and direct us so he goes with it verse 21 Jesus said to her, woman believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the father So notice here, there is a a significant shift that's happening in the understanding of God's presence. At that time, God was usually understood to be regional. We worship the God of our region or our country or our people group. but, but, But our God isn't necessarily the God of all the gods. And here she's communicating in such a way that God is the God of Jerusalem or or, or of Israel at the most. And this is language that would be very familiar of that day in many other places that our God is the God of, in this case, Israel. And in addition to that, God resides in a place within our, our borders. Jerusalem, for example. Or the Samaritans made a, a shift so that they could worship and be made right with God through their worship. We know that works don't get us there, but it, that was then and this is now. On Mount Gerizim, they worshiped God. And notice, Jesus doesn't correct her per se, he just speaks the truth. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the the Father, because God is not constrained or restricted or in any way contained in space. This is not where God is. God now is in his people, and we are the church. This is not the church. And in, in his day, he was saying, God is not on this mountain, and he's not in Jerusalem, but he is the God of all creation. This is where he's headed. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he's he's making a slight correction to her theology and getting her to understand that it is through the Jews, not the Samaritans, that the Savior will come. That doesn't exclude Samaritans, but it directs her attention to the right place, to the right people and ultimately to the right Savior, indeed to himself. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, and aren't you so glad that he added this, and is now here. So we can know that this time is now here. We're not still waiting for that time to come. That time has come. Then with him and her there in Samaria and for all time after that. An hour is coming or the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers. Now I want to pause there for a second. When he uses the modifier true, that means that there is the possibility of false. So we have to make sure that we are true worshipers, not by our own judgment, not by a sense of feeling, but according to God's Word, as confirmed by the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, verses of Scripture, I know you've heard that like a hundred times, and I've applied to it more than a hundred times. A bunch of different verses. Well, Well, one of them is Romans chapter 8, yes, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. This is the only test that I know of in Scripture to know whether someone is saved and it's not you all judging me or me judging you. It's the inner testimony of the Spirit of God to my spirit that I am his child and no one can take that away from me. There is an hour coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father not in a place, not in a Building, not even the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because most of our versions, well, some of our versions don't quite get what's going on here. There is a construct in the Greek language, and I know this is not a Greek class, so I'll, I'll be brief, but there is a construct where there are multiple units or, 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 or elements or, or items in the sequence and, and, and it communicates that all of them are equal to the others, that individually they are of, of equal value. Probably the most important and the most familiar that we know of is in the Great Commission, he says and baptize them in the name of the father and in the name of the son and in the uh, the name of the holy spirit i really really don't like translations that don't give all those words in all three of those times because it loses something because what the writer in this case matthew is saying about the great commission and the baptism is that the father and the son and the spirit are equal This is the triune God, and we are being baptized in in His name. And so when when you see that repetitive exact phrasing, in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Spirit, you know that from a Greek point of view, and, and that's where the truth is coming from in the New Testament, from a Greek point of view, every element of that sequence is equal to the others. The same is true here. In the Spirit and in the truth, is what the text says. So it's not either or. It's not kind of both and, because we, we, we prefer this one, but we include the other. It's of equal value, the spirit and the truth. And we tend to favor one or the other. We, we, we tend to favor the works of the spirit and those churches gather together, make denominations, or, or we prefer the truth. So, so those, those people who prefer sermons and textual teaching and that sort of thing tend to gather together also over here in this group of churches. And, and what Jesus is saying is the true worshipers will worship God both in the spirit and in the truth, and equally so. That's what the text says. And we have to get back to that true worship by true worshipers. For the Father is seeking such people. What are the such people? The true worshipers who worship God in the spirit and in the truth. For God is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in the spirit and in the truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's saying, yeah, I I hear you. That's great, sounds like good stuff. But I'm waiting, you know, for the Messiah. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine? Don't look like the Messiah I was expecting. You do kind of sound like the Messiah I was expecting. I don't think the Messiah I was expecting would be here at a well waiting for me to come draw water and give him a drink. I who speak to you am am he. So the true worshipers are those who offer true worship in spirit and in truth, or to be more precise, in the spirit and in the truth. Now a surprise and two lessons for Jesus' disciples, verses 27 to 30. Just, just, just then. So, so another tremendous aspect of the Gospels is the, the timing. that is not just a literary device, but we believe the, these to be the true words of God. And he is orchestrating behind the scenes these events Just right, or in verse 27, just then, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to all the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They, those people in the town who were listening to her, went out of the town and were coming to him. Two lessons. The surprise was the disciples found Jesus talking with this woman alone at the well. Yeah, it was a public place, but, but still a Samaritan woman at the well. What is he doing talking to her? And oh, by the way, she had five husbands and living with another. They don't necessarily know that, but that's a complicating factor. That's the surprise. The two lessons for the Jesus' disciples, and we, we, we must hear these two lessons. Lesson number one, in Christ Jesus, no human beings are unclean, outcast, or untouchable. In Christ Jesus, all human beings are created in God's own image and likeness for the express purpose of representing him on the earth. That's why Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Although, by rule and regulation, he ought not to have been. She neither as a woman nor she as a Samaritan was unclean to him, was out of bounds to him, was outcast to him, or was untouchable to him. We need to get this in the church. I'm not saying this church in particular, but I mean we really need to get this in the church. Martin Luther King once said that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in the United States. He was right. It's still largely true, although we are blessed of having, and I look forward to more, of having more diversity, as they call it, uh, more ethnicity, uh, among our congregation. It is more visibly at that point a New Testament church and reflects the lesson of the disciples. The second lesson is this. Our job as Jesus's disciples is to testify to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and he will do the drawing and the saving. So much of the church today is to get people through the door and get their behinds in the pews and get them giving to the the institution so that we can continue to run the institution, to get people in the doors, to seat them in the pews, to get them giving, to run the institution. Our job is to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who draws people. And if we get that right, then people are coming because they're being drawn by the Spirit of God, that God can entrust us with these people, and we can become the true worshipers of the one true and living God, according to his word, and, 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 and empowered by his Spirit. A surprise and two lessons for Jesus' disciples, including us. Well, there's, one, there's two more, and I'll be quick here. Another lesson for Jesus' disciples, and that's, Concerning the harvest, and this, uh, I, I benefited from one of my seminary professors here. I I, I I don't remember who it was. I could guess. I think it I think it was uh, Doctor Hol- Holcomb, who was a ch- church history guy, a brilliant guy. Uh, but he did a lot of exposition of his <laughs> church history, and uh, I think it was from him. Verse thirty-one. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, that is, urging Jesus, saying, "Rabbi, eat." But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, again, hearing something spiritual, but interpreting it literally. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him some food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Here's the the insight that I think it was Dr. Holcomb gave to this passage. Almost certainly, almost certainly, after verse 30 happens, they, that as the townspeople, went out of the town and were coming to him, and Jesus says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's indicating toward the town where they see the people flooding to him. That gives me chill bumps. I'd love to direct that scene in a movie somewhere where Jesus is saying to his clueless disciples yet again, lift up your heads and look at what's happening. And here the people are coming to Jesus. Incredible. Another lesson for Jesus' disciples, and that is Jesus does the drawing. We do the testifying. Verse thirty. Six Already the one who reaps is, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Other ha- others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Finally, a true testimony, and listen to me, our biblical model for outreach and evangelism. A true testimony and our Biblical model for outreach and evangelism. Those are two separate things. Outreach is relating to, inviting, walking with unbelievers, and, and also unchurched folks who, who, who may be Christians and they've just lost their way or, or lost their church or something's happened to them, they've moved from one city to another. That's outreach. Evangelism is bringing somebody to conversion to Christ that they be saved, and they be added to the number of the church, who is the people, not the building. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So they've they've arrived. We can still see on the scene Jesus sitting on the well, See these people coming up and making their way around the well, and so, so Jesus is now surrounded by the townspeople and many of them believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So, so they're coming in, in, in response to what she said. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So he's there. Talk about an interruption of your schedule. It says he was going to Galilee. It doesn't say anything about stopping over in Sychar for two days. And yet, his schedule was nothing That was an impediment to him staying there for two days for their benefit and many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. A true testimony and our biblical model for outreach and evangelism. It is our job to testify. It is Jesus' job by the Holy Spirit to draw. And If we'll just stay on our lane, not try to make ourselves appealing to an outside world, The one thing the church must not do is to become more worldly to reach more worldly people. That's just about the most ridiculous thing I can ever think of. And yet that's what the church is chasing so, so often these days. Let's pray together. God our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for what you're doing among us these days. We don't look impressive. We don't feel impressive. In fact, we are not impressive. And And yet, we do have a sense of your presence. We do have a sense of your providence. We do have a sense that you are are, are, are with us and will never leave us. We do have a sense that you have not taken our candlestick from its holder and that you continue to have a mission for us to fulfill. We pray that as your Holy Spirit makes us able, according to your word, that you will continue to use us in the way that only you can and allow us to take our hands off of whatever tendencies of control or predictability we might have and allow you to do your work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.